Hello and welcome once again to Civiline Insights. My name is Gareth Westwood, Head of Global Intelligence, and we're recording this from our central London office on Thursday, the 23rd of February, 2023. On today's episode, Ben Manzin will join us to talk about load shedding in South Africa. Supriya Ravishankar will join us to talk about Pakistan's recent bill on austerity. And Conrad Petritus will discuss alternative attitudes to the Ukraine conflict in Latin America. Okay, Ben, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, really great to welcome you back. Pleasure um, I think last month we spoke about the Nigerian elections and the world's gaze is on Nigeria this weekend, we know, but your desk has been following developments in South Africa and particularly uh, in regards to power and, and load shedding. Uh, so before we get into the operating environment and what it means for South Africa, can you just explain to us what is load shedding and why do governments use it? Sure. So basically, you know, where you have too much power demand for the uh, capacities, uh, the government's capacity to generate that power, um, you'll need to, what governments sometimes choose to do is um, through controlled blackouts, controlled power cuts scheduled, um, reduce the amount of um, power on the, on the national grid to basically um, manage spikes in energy usage and, yeah, basically deal with the fact that they can't produce enough power for everyone that wants to use it. Um, South Africa has been using this as a tool for, well, decades at this point. Uh, but, recent, but recently they've been using it more, especially in the last few years, um, because basically during the administration of the last president, Jacob Zuma, um, there was an intense pe a period of an intense corruption. A lot of contracts that are necessary to um, ESCOM, the national energy utility, uh, went to uh, close allies and friends. And basically, um, contracts weren't fulfilled properly. Uh, stations didn't get as many coal deliveries as they were meant to get. Uh, maintenance work was done poorly. It wasn't done at all. And so um, ESCOM racked up this huge debt um, through because it had to then pay extra things to get the resources actually needed. And, um, and all the while, its power stations were sort of falling apart, essentially. And so we've got to this point now where um, you have all this very old um, energy generating equipment, uh, which needs to be maintained and all this investment needs to go into it. And, um, and, 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 at the, and all the while, it's not really working very well. And so combined with the fact that South Africa's population has grown so much and its energy needs have grown so much, it's now less capable to provide that power because of these systemic problems that are tied heavily to corruption and state capture. Okay, so load shedding not new to South Africa, but recent years, especially this year, um, we've we've seen this extra load shedding um, stage. I think stage four load shedding, stage six, stage six load shedding, as you described it in a recent report. Okay, so briefly, then, what does that mean for the operating environment in South Africa, and you know, how is it being received by the population? Yeah, so basically um, there are various, as you alluded to, there are various levels of uh, stages depending on how much power they're taking out of circulation. We've seen the, the most power taken out, you know, on record basically in these last few weeks. Um, and this can mean power cuts of 10, 12 hours a day. Um, and obviously this is hugely disruptive for, you know, people across the entire country. And, you know, and some companies are able to mitigate its impacts, and some some people are able to mitigate its impact by using like auxiliary generators or things like that. But for the vast majority of people, they don't have access to these things, and so it's it's hugely um, disruptive to their everyday lives. It, it's it means that you know um, obviously they can't um, do things at home don't work. They can't store food because food goes bad. Their fridge doesn't work. 
They can't travel around as easily because everything's congested because the traffic signaling doesn't work. And so, yeah, people are fed up and angry about this. And so there is increasingly we're seeing these ad hoc protests. And now we're seeing um, you know, opposition parties really start to organize major demonstrations as well. Okay, so there's political uh, angles involved here with the opposition parties yeah. trying to trying to muscle in on this. Mm. Um, are we seeing any uh, widespread organized unrest fermenting then, or is it very sporadic and ad hoc as you describe it at the moment? So it has been sporadic and ad hoc to date, but uh, we're seeing now the economic freedom fighters of South Africa's kind of radical left-wing party organize a, a national shutdown on the 20th of March. Now, um, there have been previous national shutdowns in South Africa's history, and usually they're conducted by like, uh, South Africa's major uh, trade union movements. And the EFF doesn't really have the trade union connections, um, and certainly the alliance that is necessary with like the taxi federations that move everyone across the country to really conduct a national shutdown. Um, but, but there is enough anxiety in the population, um, and there's enough you know, frustration about the, these conditions, as well as concern about um, the potential privatization of ESCOM in the future, that they will get enough um, support from some unions, enough support from people to really, I think, conduct some quite disruptive protests on the 20th of March. Not like people can't go into work or anything like that, but in major cities, you'll see some organized demonstrations. And in those outlying areas, the townships, those less economic um, suburbs, you will see people try and block roads. Uh, which will inevitably um, result, I think, in clashes with police. So quite a dangerous environment to be around. So aside from known hotspots then in, in the population centres, yeah. um, suburbia, especially the less economically well-developed parts yeah, yeah. Of, of the cities, um, very difficult environments to operate in hmm. uh, for, for staff and businesses. And going forward, you know, we got the 20th of, of, of March. Do we think that will result in any policy reversal or do we see further disruption, civil unrest um, and that cycle going forward? The difficulty is that really the government's strategy for resolving this in the long term is exactly the kind of policy that the people who are upset about these power cuts don't want to see happen. So you have these economic freedom fighters who, you know, they're, they're launching these protests because, you know, the, the power structure doesn't work. But they are also vehemently opposed to privatization, restructuring, all these sorts of things, which is one of the strategies the government is considering and has been attempting to pursue for some years now as a way of uh, mitigating ESCOM's debt and bringing investment and bringing development back into the sector. And I think the government is going to proceed with that, with, that, um, with that strategy. And in the long term, I think that, will, you know, that might reduce um, the use of load shedding and, and might bolster um, is, is generating capacities. But as we proceed with that, it's actually more likely that we'll see some protests from um, unions that are upset about this and these kind of factions associated with the radical economic transformation sure. faction in South Africa that will be opposed to these sorts of moves. So in the long term, then potentially um, a solution, but there will be some short-term pain as that solution's yeah, reached. Well, it was a really interesting report that your desk issued yesterday on this. And of course, we'll be looking out for um, further uh, products as we go uh, into, into March and beyond. But for now, thank you so much for joining us, Ben, once again. Happy to be here. Well, Supriya, welcome to Sibline Insights. It's a great pleasure to, to welcome you. Um, we're going to talk about Pakistan today. And in particular, as we're recording this, um, this morning, uh, the Pakistani government have uh, proposed a bill uh, that will pave the way for IMF funding, we hope. 
However, there are strings attached and implications, um, as we've talked about um, over the last few weeks. Before we get to that, though, can you just put us in the picture? How did we get here? Yeah, thank you, Gareth. So Pakistan's economy has always been heavily reliant on financial aid from a lot of different partners, including the IMF. The IMF has given about 22 different bailout packages in the past. And there was a time where during the American war on terror, a lot of the funding came from the West. So there's no denying that Pakistan has never actually seen like full economic potential by standing on its own feet. But particularly last year, because of two main reasons, the first is the war in Ukraine, which really led to a balance of payment crisis, particularly because of energy imports. And second, the floods, which led to 30 billion in damages hitting key industries like textiles and agriculture, which are very important for exports. Pakistan's economy has really reached a position of breaking point. So that's where we really are today. So the bill announced this morning then, uh, quite a few strings attached. Mm -hmm. um, Pakistani government hopes that this will lead to substantial funding from the IMF. But can you just briefly take us through the measures that are proposed in, in the bill? So a lot of measures included in this bill uh, involve scaling back of taxes and, and increasing tariffs on imports. So this would include a GST tax. That means a higher tax on goods like fa uh, fashion items that are imported from abroad and um, other luxury goods like mobile phones. So there's a solid incentive to make sure people don't spend a lot of money on foreign goods. Um, but there's also a lot of austerity measures included on the government itself. For example, cabinet ministers will no longer get salaries, for example. Um, and there's a, there's a bit to try and reduce all sort of government expenditure, including on security, which could be a serious issue. So yeah, the bill definitely comes with a set of strings attached. And it's important to note that an IMF bailout, which is quite possible if this does go through, is ultimately also a loan, which means that will have to be repaid. So it could, so while the bill in the short term could be a life jacket, in the long term it could actually be, uh, it could spiral into something much worse. And you mentioned this is a loan, of course. We've also seen Pakistan take an, an additional loan from China recently. Can mm. you just briefly explain what all that's about? So the China Development Bank agreed to a 700 million USD loan, in a sense, um, which is actually a condition that the IMF required for them to go ahead and give this bailout package. So it's part of that, in a sense. Um, but this makes China an even bigger player in terms of its, in, in terms of its space in Pakistan. It, it, Pakistan already owes it around 30 billion in debt. That's around one third of the total foreign debt owed by Pakistan to other countries. And a lot of that is a part of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, or CPEC, um, which has resulted in a lot of domestic dissatisfaction. We see a lot of that emerge in Balochistan, where we have uh, groups like the BLA that are very anti-China. So yeah, so it's, it's not great in the sense that it may again lead to, a, it may snowball into something much bigger, but in the short term, it's I guess what the government has to do in order to secure its position. And, you know, Pakistan's got a history of, of civil unrest, mm. um, especially in response to measures such as described in the bill. So what do we foresee in the, in the short and medium term now as a result of this bill that's been ratified this morning? Yeah. Well, it's come at a really terrible time with inflation as high as 27% in January last month. So it's definitely not come at a time where people want to be paying more taxes, so to speak, going into the future. 
Um, and there is obviously a lot of dissent with the current government because there's Imran Khan who is trying to topple that government through a protest movement. Well, in, to a large degree, wasn't very successful, but is now picking up once again. So it's not coming at a good time. And that's definitely going to spook investors. It's going to reduce confidence in the market. We can probably see that in terms of bonds and see that show in other ways. Um, but definitely it raises the risk of domestic unrest when things like the cost of petrol goes up, when it hits your stomach, when it's everyday lives being impacted at a time when the government isn't, doesn't have the best majority either. It definitely raises the risk of unrest. So a perfect storm that could lead to yeah. a very difficult operating environment in, in, in the country over, over the short, medium term. A plethora of risks there. I'm sure we'll enjoy reading about them in all your reporting. But for now, Supriya, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Conrad, great to have you on the podcast. A warm welcome. Uh, we're recording this on the, on the eve of the Ukrainian invasion anniversary. And uh, today we're going to explore some attitudes in Latin America towards, towards the conflict. Now, a lot of countries we've observed um, in the region have, have changed their stance uh, since the conflict began. Um, can you explain roughly where we are with that? Is this a developing trend that you're seeing or are these one-off uh, political positions? Um, yeah, Gareth. So at the start of the conflict, there were more or less three countries that uh, had an overt uh, position supporting Russia. That would be Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua. And then the vast majority of, um, of all the other countries were very public in their support for Ukraine. That has changed a little bit in the past couple of weeks. We've seen the vast majority of countries return to what I would say is the historical mean, uh, more non-interventionist stance in the region. And we've seen that shift. We don't expect that shift to, to reverse anytime soon. So what, what's driving the separation with ostensibly Western, US, EU positions then? What's driving the, the rift? So the, the short answer is um, they've, the Ukraine and Ukrainian allies has, have started to ask for stuff, uh, more tangible support. So the U.S. unveiled this proposition. They would uh, exchange uh, more or less um, Russian weaponry in Latin America for more modern uh, U.S. weaponry. All countries said no to that. Um, and then Olaf Scholz had a, a very high-profile trip just around the southern cone. Uh, he visited uh, Brazil, Argentina, Chile. And uh, I believe the only tangible com uh, outcome of that little meeting was that uh, he got some demining expertise from Chile. Um, so, yeah, the, it, the wider trend right now is very much driven by the fact that they're starting to, to ask for more tangible support. So, um, so what are the consequences then, particularly for Ukraine and Russia? Are there any consequences to this shift? The, you could argue there are some... Uh, real consequences. So uh, Latin America has historically been a very large buyer of uh, Russian weaponry. Um, Argentina, Brazil, Ecuador, um, Colombia all have um, large stockpiles of Russian weaponry. Uh, Peru in particular has both MiG and Sukhoi uh, jets that are operational that they could trade in uh, for American weaponry. But again, all those countries have very much said um, very politely, no thank you. Um, yeah, returning back to the historical mean. So you could argue that they could have somewhat in the near term, a little bit of, of, um, of an impact on the ground. 
So, I mean, diplomatically then, do the US, EU, UK have any sway? Are we going to see any uh, response to this from, from, from the West, essentially, towards Latin America to try and get them to, I don't know, change tack? So there's strength in numbers at the moment. Um, Latin America, as I said, has historically been non-interventionist, especially during the Cold War. They try to play both sides of uh, against each other in a lot of respects. And um, the, the only real tool that um, the US or the UK or the EU for that matter have uh, is sanctions. It's, so the US and the EU, you can see in the graphs in our latest report, um, the amount of sanctions that have gone up in 2022 have been historical. We've never seen this amount of sanctions being um, institutionalized, being rolled out by, by these two jurisdictions. Um, as we've seen in the past year, you can see them grow two, three, four times over. And these are sanctions yeah. against what, Latin American? No, no, these are sanctions against both Russian and third party countries. So right now, um, sanctions haven't really touched Latin America, sure. which remains a very large buyer of Russian products, uh, specifically fertilizers. Um, but there's no reason to, there's no evidence to suggest that those sanctions won't start to impact the water continent. Sure, and, and that's, I think, what I want to delve into finally. Yeah. Um, you touched on it there. Latin American firms that might be doing trade with, with Russia, for example, um, what are the impacts for Latin American firms? Have we seen any impacts already as a result of the sanctions, for example? Not necessarily. A lot of firms have, um, have not decoupled from Russia. Um, th this is in large part because Russia can, is one, one of the largest uh, suppliers of fertilizers, of grain. Um, both supply chains are very much interlinked. And to uh, execute uh, a decoupling, like we saw a lot of countries in Europe have done over the past years, it would cost a, a lot of political capital in the region. I would say that. Um, so that that would be for the politicians, but for the firms, they, they just haven't been pressured. There hasn't been that, that public pressure or that political pressure to go ahead and remove themselves from those relationships. So what do we have some Latin American firms that are essentially at risk of breaking sanctions and they're just carrying on or? they. Under the current environment, yes, they would be uh, very much at risk of, of breaking sanctions. I, I think if you asked them a year ago, they would they would not have uh, they would not have said that. Um, but firms producing dual use technology, for example, uh, firms um, supplying agricultural equipment or just raw materials, yeah, you could argue that they'd be breaking um, they'd be breaking sanctions, especially if those end products end up in front lines. So given this very complex environment, there's surely reputational risk to firms in that case. Indeed. So there's several lists out there of firms that continue to do uh, business with Russia. One of the most famous ones is one produced by Yale University. They currently list two uh, Mexican uh, large firms in there. They rated, um, I think they rate them one to five. But both of them are rated five. And then you can see uh, Latin American countries, excuse me, Latin American companies starting to permeate uh, and be introduced into those firms, uh, into those lists. So yeah, we can expect that to be a developing trend moving forward. So a really complex trade environment then. Uh, and, and the political um, stance by the Latin, Ameri Latin American administrations potentially have real impact on 
on firms that deal with Russia. Um, I know it's something that your desk are very keen on on monitoring at the moment, and you've pushed out a number of reports, and we look forward to reading more of them to inform us in the future. But for now, thank you very much, Conrad. Thank you. Well, that's it for another edition of Sibline Insights. Thank you to Ben, Supriya, Conrad, and thanks to you for joining us once again. We look forward to welcoming you to the next episode, and please do remember to like and subscribe.